Okay, Luke 14, verse 25 says, Now, great crowds accompanied him, Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Moreover, does, uh, sorry, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first um, sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, he is not able to finish. All who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear... Let him hear. Dual citizenship means that you can be a citizen of more than one country at a time. Uh, Australia, America, Canada will naturalize immigrants without requiring those immigrants to renounce uh, allegiance or loyalty or citizenship to any other country that they're already a citizen in. Uh, Malaysia, Singapore, China, Japan, uh, these countries, uh, if you want to become a citizen in them, you will have to renounce citizenship to all other countries. And in this way, uh, these Asian countries have almost a, a head start on understanding the kind of discipleship that Jesus is talking about. In other words, Jesus is really saying, hey, I want you to know that my kingdom is open to citizens. We're taking whoever wants to come in, but you've got to renounce citizenship to all other kingdoms. You've got to leave it all at the door. You can come in for free, but leave it all at the door. Uh, there's no dual citizenship in the kingdom of God, is what Jesus is going to show us. And to enter, we have to give him everything. So Jesus is teaching, and there's this large crowd that's gathering towards him. Why? Because they're looking for a king. This is what they've been told to expect. And so they're coming to Jesus, looking for a king, looking for a good king, looking for someone who's going to overthrow the Romans, someone they can throw their allegiance behind, someone who's going to lift up their nation, and so they go looking for a king. He, likewise, is the king, and he's looking for subjects, loyal subjects, subjects who will come into his kingdom, who will uh, come into submission under his rule and reign as lord and king of their lives. He's willing to save them, to get them in. Um, and so there's this wonderful partnership between crowd and king although they might not be getting from each other what um, they want. Jesus kind of surprises everyone in that he teaches a teaching that clearly shows Jesus is more interested in quality than quantity. He's not looking to have the biggest kingdom, but he's going to have the best. He doesn't need the best of the best, but he's looking for quality of discipleship, not how many disciples he can get. Um, so, so here we go, there's, there's no dual citizenship in God's kingdom, all are invited to come in for free, uh, you get everything for nothing, but if you don't give up everything, you get nothing, um, so what do we do? 
There's a lot to understand here, and Jesus wants us to. That's why he's teaching it. That's why he ends with, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. He wants us to understand. Um, You'll note straight after this, and we might note it at the end, straight after this, crowds gather. It doesn't say crowds scatter. Straight after this teaching, crowds gather. And um, so there's something good about uh, his teaching, even though it was hard. So here's the three things we're going to look at. How totally free grace and the cost of discipleship can live together. The disturbing cost of discipleship, number two. And number three, it's worth the cost. Okay, number one, free grace and the cost of discipleship. How do these go together? We've sung about it, Adam read about it, and I just want to repeat a lot of what we've already sung and what Adam read in Ephesians 2 um, about the grace of God's Uh, the grace of God. God's grace and our salvation are without merit and they are without confusion free. Let me read to you some scriptures. In the Gospels, the Gospels, uh, Jesus teaches us that we come without money and price. They knew that since the Old Testament, uh, that we come without money and without price to get what we need for life. Paul says that we are justified by grace Uh, by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. He teaches the Romans. We are justified as a grace, as a gift. If you have added anything to it, if you have earned it, if you have got it through merit, you have not got it as a gift, you've got it as a a, uh, quid pro quo. You paid, you got something in return. That's not a gift. A gift comes for free. Paul says we got it by freedom, by grace. Jesus says, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins, in according to the riches of His grace that He has lavished on us. According to the riches of His grace that He has lavished on us, we have redemption through His blood, Paul wrote to the Ephesians. The Bible teaches us that our one and only boast for salvation, for forgiveness, for righteousness is in the Lord. 1 Corinthians, Paul teaches the church there. And then, and then as uh, Adam read it, part of it this morning, I'll, I'll read the, the part that came after what Adam read. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. We cannot confuse that salvation is through the grace of God in Jesus Christ alone. He bore our sins He's, it's done. You can't, you can't get saved any other way but by the grace of, Jesus, of God in Jesus Christ. But if you want to be a Christian, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, if you want to follow Him, there's an inescapable cost. Not a, a part two you can mature to. At the front door, there's an inescapable cost. I'll give you a few in, imperfect examples, but I hope they make sense. Jesus stood before a woman caught in adultery and uh, her accusers wanted to stone her, and they could do that by law. And then Jesus asked, Jesus basically said, "Whoever has no sins, pick up the you know pick up the first stone and throw it." And they realized if they do that, they're all going to be judged and they're all going to be stoned. So they left. And Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery, uh, "Where are those that? Is there anyone here left to condemn you, condemn you, to judge you?" And she said, "No." And he said to her, "Well, neither do I condemn you." In other words, he's just saved her for free by grace. He's saved her life. And then he says, now then, go 
and from now on, sin no more. So in the heat of his awesome grace, he vaporized condemnation. But once it was vaporized, once there was no condemnation in Jesus Christ, he said, go and sin no more. He saved her, and then he commanded her. He saved her by grace, and then he commanded her how to live. And he saw nothing wrong with that. He first saves her, and then he commands her to change her life. Imagine a blind man stands outside your local Woolworths, and he can't work. He's dependent on the kindness of those who take pity on him. Uh, He's seen no beauty. Uh, He's seen no grief. He's just blind, and he he just needs uh, people's help and handouts. But then Jesus walks past him on his way to go pick up some milk and just touches him and says, be healed, and carries on walking. Um, free. He receives his sight for absolute free. By the grace of God, Jesus heals him. And tomorrow he shows up in the same place begging. There's, we know there's something wrong with that. That's not right. No, tomorrow, well, no, from that moment, he leaves. He leaves his begging and goes into life. He suddenly sees his wife's face, and he sees his children's face, and he turns that beauty that he sees into praise, into gratitude. He sees a sunset for the first time, and he feels a joy he's never felt before, and that joy is turned into praise. There's a duty and a delight to receiving the grace of God. There's a freedom to, uh, of duty and delight in the grace of God. He sees another blind man, and he can't just walk past. You can't just, there's something wrong about that. Having seen this blind man, he feels a grief. He feels an empathy that he's never felt before. There's a duty and delight after you receive the grace of God. To grieve in ways you've never grieved before. To rejoice in ways you've never rejoiced before. Why? Because you've seen. Your eyes have been opened. Imagine a homeless orphan eats food from, sorry, uh, (laughs) eats food out of the trash, sleeps in a cardboard box and urinates in the corner of a dark alleyway. And then the king of the land, the great king, comes and adopts her. And she moves into the castle. From that moment, there is an expectation that little by little her life will change. If she keeps her life the same. She goes outside to the back of the house and digs in trash for dinner. There's something wrong with that. She needs to learn how to eat at the table of her family. If she goes outside with a cardboard box feeling like she has to be cold and uncomfortable to fall asleep. There's something wrong with that. She has to learn how to find her way to her room and get comfortable in her silk sheets and soft pillows and warm blankets. If she goes and finds dark corners of the castle to urinate in, there's something wrong with that. She needs to learn to find the restrooms and use the porcelain porcelain little vases. Why? Because there's a duty and delight in being made a princess. Your life is forever changed. Yes, you have time to learn to read and to write. Yes, you have time to learn which of the five forks forks and knives working outwards in are you supposed to use. Yes, you have time to learn to look people in the eyes and greet them out of respect. Yes, you have time to learn how to curtsy and all those things. Every single day, you're learning more and more and more to be the princess the king has already made you, but you never stay back in the alleyway, the trash pile, the cardboard box, and the corner full of urine. That's not your life anymore. You got adopted by the grace of God, but from that moment, there's a duty and delight to live in the freedom 
of who you are. She would experience more grace as she commits herself to the duty and delight. So faith in Jesus is always a free gift given by God. But when we receive it, if we become a disciple, there's also both duty and delight. You might even say there's a duty to delight in the great things that God opens our lives to. So that's how they live together. That's how the um, free grace and the cost of discipleship happily live together. It's natural that once you've received the amazing grace of God, your life turns to a life of duty and delight. You don't necessarily love everything. Things change, so be it. It's different. Once you were a beggar, now you're a prince or a princess of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Once you were blind, but now you see. Once you were deaf, but now you hear. Once you were lame, but now you walk. And every day we learn how to live in the freedom that we have by the grace of God. Number two, the the disturbing cost of discipleship. Jesus basically says no one should uh, claim to be one of his followers willy-nilly. He wants us to think about this. In times of revival, this text is often preached because the church swells up because to be a Christian becomes popular. And so this, this text is preached so that people can really mark where their hearts are at, if they're truly following Jesus or a trend. But also in times more like our days, which was, was more similar to what Jesus was uh, teaching in, where, you know, you have religion, the religious, the secular, more, these divides. Um, it, it's also a great text because it helps us understand how strong His call is in our lives. Because we need a great, big, strong Savior. We don't need a half-hearted Savior who leaves us in the culture, leaves us be, lets us live the way that we want, and says, I'll get you on the flip side. I'll raise you from the dead and then bring you into life. We're done for now. I'll meet you then. We need a Lord and Savior who can speak into our time and space, even if it confronts us and disrupts us, and even if we don't like it. That's actually what we need. Someone who knows what they're doing with our lives, leading us. And this is exactly what he does. But he goes, think about it. You need to think about it. Um, He says, first of all, think about it like this. He goes, a person doesn't go build a mansion without first thinking about if he's willing to pay the cost. Is he he in it for the long haul? My dad built a house and a church building at the same time. It almost killed him. I kid you not. took years off of his life. I'm not 100% sure he knew what he was in for beforehand. Physically almost killed him. And Jesus says, if you're going to build this mansion, you're going to build the Taj Mahal, you don't just uh, start it. You first go meet with the architects. You go meet with the banks. You, you figure out what it's going to cost. You go meet with the neighbors. Are there going to be any problems? How long is it going to take? Uh, add some time to that. Add some money to that. What's the economy like? Do you, can you, you, know, you, you weigh it all up before you start building. And then if you decide to do it, you, you just bear the cost. You know what it's going to take to finish the job. Because it says if you start, if you put the foundations in, and then you stop because it got too hard, you, you be, you, people mock you, they scoff at you, they laugh at you. It's, it's quite a confronting. It's like they don't, they don't talk behind your back. They'll talk straight to your face. You fool, I told you so. The, there was a couple, I won't say their name, who built the uh, Perth version of the Taj Mahal in Peppermint Grove or tried, started, but they never finished. The media slaughtered them. They couldn't possibly move back to Australia, certainly not Perth. 
Why? The media made an absolute mockery of them. They didn't finish what they were building. And Jesus, Jesus says it's the, the same. If you're going to start this, you just think about it because it's going to cost a lot. How long is it going to take to build this mansion? Your whole life. All right. What will it cost? It's big. Weigh it up. It's wise. Consider it. He's not offended by that. He's not saying like, I'm the best thing. He's not like a jealous boyfriend saying, you don't have better options. I'm about as good as it gets. Are you in or are you out? He comes and he goes, hey, following me is going to be hard. I'll, I'll, say, I'll bring you into my kingdom free. But to, to follow me is incredibly hard. You need to think about it before you decide. Pause. But then he says, he weighs that up with another thing. But there's, another, there's also another way. You know, there's a king that goes to war, and he has 10,000 men, and the, and the opposition has 20,000 men, so he can't, he can't win. And he's going to go to war, and he's got to consider whether he can actually go to war and, and beat this king. There's two kings. Only one can survive. Or would it be better to go and make peace with this king? You, you can no longer be king, but at least you'll be alive. At least not, your, whole, your whole kingdom won't be destroyed. And so Jesus goes, on the, on the other hand, you, know, you really need to bear the cost of, of following me. But on the other hand, you've you, you got to also think that to not follow me is worse. It's going to be more costly. You, you can't hold on to everything. You'll, you'll leave this life with nothing. But if you give up everything, you come and make peace with the king, you will get, you'll lose nothing. You'll gain everything. So he, he's very helpful. I think. He says, option one. Let me give you some, some scriptures. He says, here's option one. Come, let's build your life as a disciple. In the foundations, we'll pour faith into you. Then we'll add to your faith some bricks of goodness. I'm just quoting one Peter, but my own paraphrase. We'll add some goodness. Then, as you keep building and strengthen this goodness with some knowledge, I'll teach you from our word. And as the building is getting higher, you'll need to add some self-control. It's going to feel really costly. You may want to give up. But if you build well, it will be just the right time to lay lay, lay a, a level of perseverance. This is exactly what Peter says. Now it's time to put in perseverance. That's that part of the building now. Any of you in your, in your Christian walk got to the point where it, it was now time to put in perseverance? For sure. It doesn't have to take very long to get there. Then once this is unshakable, place some beams across the sides of godliness. And then finally on the roof, put brotherly affection. And when the roof is on, brush the entire building inside and out in love. This is exactly what kind of a house I'd love to come and move into. Option number one. Option number two, in other words, it's going to take a while. We're going to have to work on you, but we'll build, we'll get there. We'll get there, and eventually we'll wrap it all up in love. Option number two is go to war with me, but you can't win. Okay, so before anyone decides to build a war, uh, to build or to go to war, we have to know the cost, and, and Jesus lays it out before us. Uh, he says in verse 27, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he 
you cannot be my disciple. We have to be careful of cheap discipleship, especially in Western contexts. We have to be careful of we have to be careful of ungrace. And we have to be careful of cheap discipleship. If you're a runner, I don't think John O'Gray is here, I haven't seen him, but if you're a John O'Gray and he's a good runner, uh, he wouldn't go buy a pair of A6, not A6, A6. Uh, because what? He's going to give himself shin splints. He's going to go spend a lot of money on a good pair of shoes. If you are in the entertainment business or you love hosting and you watch movies together with people, you don't go buy a TV made by Sam's son. You, you go buy a, a good TV. You don't buy uh, kind of these cheap products that, that won't help you. If you're a, a pilot, you don't go buy Ray-Bans with a D. Actually, that may be how you spell it. I apologize if I got that wrong. An alternate spelling on the sunglasses, however that is. Or beats, like beetroot, double E. You don't, if you're a sound producer... In other words, whatever you're about in your life, you don't go buy a cheap version of that because you know fundamentally it's going to fail you. You won't be able to do what you're doing. Don't go find a cheap savior that requires nothing because he won't have the power to do anything. Beware of that. So what's the cost of following Jesus? Basically, it can be summed up in this one sentence. You must love him more and before anyone and everyone in this world. You must love him more and before anyone and everyone in this world. Firstly, nowhere in any of Jesus' teachings or in the Bible, anywhere, can you find a positive teaching on hating other people. It's Jesus himself who teaches, love your enemies. So when the, when the word here is, unless you hate your father and mother, he's not at all introducing an, a system of hate in the, family, uh, the families that he has uh, made since the Garden of Eden. The idea here is not how we hear it, of hating someone. The idea here is of uh, not giving anyone a preference over him. It's loving him so much that in comparison... Uh, everything else is less love. Our, our word, our English word for hate is so, it's so monodynamic. It only means a horrible thing to feel towards other people. But what Jesus is saying is not that at all. There's just nothing in the Bible that says that ever. What Jesus is saying is, love me so much that no one else's love is like this. Uh, your love for no one else is like this. Do you know how to love someone that's much greater than you, much wiser than you, much stronger than you, much better than you? Much... We love people like ourselves, people we understand, people we get. In other words, even, even just people. People are people that we understand. It's easier to love people than it is animals. It's easier to love people than it is trees. It's a bit odd when people are saving the trees and not saving the people. Uh, there's something, we, we love things that we understand that are like us. Uh, that's how we made. But how do you love a being, a person, that is just not like you, that is just so much greater and wiser and stronger? And Jesus, this is exactly what he's trying to show us. I'll show you how to love me. I'll show you how to put me first. And he uses the strongest ties of love known to humanity to say, love me more than these. 
He goes straight to our hearts, not our heads, so we can't shake or go, yeah, okay, all right. He goes straight here because we, we, we love, we feel, we know, we, we will experience it. So first of all, uh, the first people Jesus go, uses to help us is mum and dad. The feeling that you have for mum and dad. Let's assume best case scenario, some of you haven't had great case scenarios, but the most, the best, let's assume best case scenario, mum and dad are a great example. You'd, you'd bend over backwards for mum and dad. Mum and dad uh, call you over for dinner. You would, dad wouldn't say no. You just, if mum and dad say come, you come. If mum and dad say don't do that, you don't do that. They have, they have a strong hold on your life, on your affections, on your likes, your dislikes. Your values, they shape them really. Jesus says, hey, you know how when your dad traveled and, and you would go into his cupboard and just smell his clothes and feel as if you were close to him. And it, it hurt so much that he wasn't there, but it felt so good to have him there, at least in smell. And you know that time when you were bullied and, and all you wanted was to get into the arms of your mom and put her, her, your head against her chest. You know the security you felt when your mom held you? It's like, you know that? Well, cut that cord and connect it to me. Let me be your father. Let me be your mother. And what we learn with Jesus is that when we love him more and we love him first, we love our families better. You won't, you, I, you know, there's different family cultures here. But the best things we can do if we want our kids to love and honor us when they are adults is to teach them to love Jesus first because he will make them love and honor us. But if we put ourselves before Christ, they will one day have to choose us or Jesus. And I hope they choose Jesus. Or how about when you fell head over heels? You lost the balance of your life. You fell into love so deep. You lost your way as you gazed into the face of your love, your spouse, husband or wife. That person that your dreams, their dreams and your dreams became intertwined so that you forgot whose dreams were whose. It didn't matter. As one of you gains, it's your gain. As one of you loses, it's your loss. Life is so mixed up because of your love for each other that you feel the same for each other. You win the same for each other. You dream the same for each other. You help each other out. How about that? How about your spouse? Jesus says you must love him with greater passion. You must find his dream and your dream and intertwine that until all you can remember is that your dream is his dream, that you want what he wants, that his will is your will. That how he sees you is how you see you. That how he sees the world is how you see the world. The things that he burns for, you burn for. What he yearns for, you yearn for. Your hearts have been so knitted together in love. How many spouses put a leash on their partner's love for Christ? How many put boundaries or limitations on their lavish submission to Jesus? But when we fall for Jesus, when we love Jesus in this passionate way, we do lose balance. It's, we do fall out of balance with Jesus. He does become number one. And if we as spouses are insecure, we will stand between our spouse and our Jesus. 
Sometimes it's the hardest thing in the world not to try and be Jesus in my wife's life. Why? Because it's a great opportunity to be the, solu- the solution, the solver of problems, the healer of wounds, the hero of the day. Sometimes, always, the right answer is love. Have you gone to him? I'll pray with you. I'll pray for you. We can even go to him together. But have you gone to him? When we love him first, we will love our spouses better. What about those beautiful babies? Violet and Daniel and Indy and Hazelra. Those perfect children. I mean, Daniel's about as close to perfect as you get. He doesn't even cry. He squawks. The other day he went, eh. And Jib and Tripthy were at our house and they apologized that he was making such a fuss. I almost burst into tears. Ezekiel cried like this, for three months. Eh. Sorry, sorry, guys. We don't know what's got into him. What about these beautiful babies? What about when they say our names and something happens? It's like they play a song in our hearts that we've never heard before, but when they say our names, it's a song that, that we dance to, that we sing to. We know it. Oh, my goodness. What about when they walk between us, that walk of trust, that tightrope of learning to wobble from dad to mom, and they do it, full of trust, full of hope, looking at us. If you think I can do it, I can do it. What about the two o'clock in the morning when Daniel squawks and Tripthi jumps to attention? And goes and serves her son in love and grace and patience. Jesus says, I want that first. If at two o'clock in the morning I need to get you up to pray, I need you to jump to attention. I need you. I need you right there and say, yes, Lord, here am I. What is on your heart? What do you need from me? If I need you to cross the room to go serve your neighbor, I need you to be ready with as much zeal and passion as you would cross the room to serve your own child. When you see the lost and the broken, I need you to to care for them the same as you would see your child when they are lost and they are broken. You know that feeling when you're in the mall and they're playing hide and seek and they're, they're hiding in a rack of clothes and they're gone forever and you freak out and they're on every single announcement and everyone is running around and they are dead quiet because that's how you play hide and seek. You know how you felt? I want you to feel about the people that I'm trying to find that are still lost. I want you to have my heart. Because when you love me first, you love your children better. But Lord, my children need me. What your children need most is for you to love him. I don't want to say this to embarrass them because I probably have already. But I think this morning was an incredible example of a family serving Jesus. Travis was sick last night, throwing up. Now everyone's going to just separate from him a little bit. Everyone just pushed their chairs a little further back. He's a sick boy. 
mum and dad are here early to serve this body, to lead us into the presence of God. Where do you think mum would rather be? Not sister, not servant, not worship leader. Where would mum rather be right now? I think at home with son in bed, putting a little wet cloth on his head, making him some chicken soup, and running between kitchen and bedroom. That's what a mum's bleeding heart wants to do. What does a dad want to do? Where would dad rather be? On the guitar. Not brother, not worship guy. Where would dad rather be? At home, getting family protected well, back to feet, getting the diseases out of the home and goodness and health back into the home. Rest in bed, playing the right music, playing the right vibe, setting the environment, getting the house in order. But where are they? I'm not saying that there aren't times to stay at home and care for the sick. You, you, I hope you understand that. But the best thing they can do for their son and their daughter is to show a love for Jesus. When we love him first, you love your children better. What about siblings and friends Jesus goes after? I mean, including friends, because he says brothers and sisters, but I think when you're really close friends with someone, you call it a brotherhood. It's like he's a brother to me. So I think we can chuck in our best friends into the brothers and sisters category as well. You know that person that's always there for you, the person you can say anything to, the person you can whinge to, and they just accept you. They just love you. They don't really have authority in your life. You can just whinge. They can just whinge. You can just celebrate. They will celebrate for you. You can text them a thousand times in the middle of the night, and they will or won't reply. It's up to them. It doesn't matter because you're brother and sister. You're always there. Jesus says, I want that. I want that love. I want you to love me like a brother. I want you to share with me every single thing that's on your heart. I want you to tell me how things are going truly, deeply. Don't hide things from me. Just speak. Just walk with me. Talk with me. Let's hang out. Let's clock time. Let's do stuff together. You know my heart. Let me know your heart. Let's learn together. Let's walk together. And when we love him first, we discover that we'll love our, our brothers and sisters better. You know one of the signs, no, let me move on. What about self-love Jesus ends with and yourself? What about taking care of number one? That's what we teach in our culture. No one else is going to. You better take care of number one. What about your reputation? What about your ambitions? What about your pleasures? What about your experiences, your comforts, your gains, your health? Jesus never teaches us to desire pain or suffering or anything sadistic. He never tells us to want something that is bad for us. But he does teach us to desire him, to walk with him, to give up our ambitions and our pleasures and our comforts and our securities. And he does tell us, you need to not desire sin. You need to not desire anything before me. You need to love me first. As we love Jesus first, we learn to love ourselves. And Jesus basically says this. He says, you've got to pick up your cross. 
Unless you pick up your cross and follow me. He basically is saying this. Without death, there's no life. You can't die to save yourself. It's not that kind of cross. Jesus has already been on it. It's that willingness to walk the road of Jesus, to go through whatever he asks us to with him. And it's this truth about grace, that grace comes alive. It gets um, animated in our lives. You see it, the freedom of grace. You see in people's lives through death. They have died in Christ. They've become alive in Christ. They've died to something. They've become alive to something. You may get called to uh, lose everything. You may get called to lose nothing, but your heart's already crucified it to Jesus. You've already given it up. You may geographically be able to live next door to your folks forever. You may never be able to live next door to your folks. You may get the kind of life you never dreamt of. You may end up with the kind of life you would have never wanted to dream of. We don't know. He doesn't tell us. He just says, pick up your cross and follow me. And when we've done that, when we've given up everything, then nothing, whatever the cost doesn't matter. Why? Oh, to know Jesus. I count all things as lost compared to the joy of knowing you. Let me draw this to a close. I told you number three would be it's worth the cost. I hope I can prove that to you. Cost is very great. Here's how it's worth the cost. Imagine you have a sickness that will kill you. And there is a cure. And the cure is very costly. And so you sell your car and you start to buy the cure, but you need more money. So you sell your spare clothes. And then you sell your furniture. And then you sell your house. And you get the cure and your life is saved. You would be so happy to be alive. Or you go, nope, it's too great. I'm not selling my car. I love that car. I'm not selling my house, it's our dream house. I'm not selling these clothes. I mean, these, have you seen me in them? I'm not selling that furniture. I mean, that's like a 70s piece of this, and that's like a blah, 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 this, and that's like a... Everyone would be, you fool! You're going to die. You're not going to be able to keep any of that. The cost is worth it. Why? Because you get everything. Life. Paul says, I just said it to you, I count all things as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. One day we'll stand before Jesus in heaven. I'm just going to, there's been a lot of analogies about fire. But we're going to stand before Jesus in heaven, and I want you to imagine you've picked up your cross, and you're standing before him, and he's, you see in his eyes these holy, righteous, pure, loving, kind eyes that see, they don't just see you, they see right through you, they see into you, they see everything about you. And you start looking. And you notice everyone else is looking, but there's one guy who's not looking, and he, he want, what are you all looking for? We're, what are we looking for? We're looking for splinters. 
I want to know that I picked up a cross. I want to, did I do it? I'm about to stand before Jesus. I want to know that I, I picked up my cross. Where is there any sign? Is there a splinter in me anywhere? Please let there be a splinter. Please. We stand before Jesus. And he stands there, I imagine, almost with his tweezer. And in that moment, when we pull out the, the splinter, and it was the scorn of our family that to follow Jesus you know, in, in some nations, if you follow Jesus, your fam, family writes you off. In this nation, if you follow Jesus, you, you might just get a hard time from your folks. I plucked it out. Jesus, the scorn of my family was for you. It will feel like nothing. We will, we will find the smallest splinter we can to boast in Jesus Christ. This was for you. This was for you. Where is it? It's here. If you look closely... It w- come, come, Jesus, look. It's right here. Oh, that's a good one. I see, you see that? You see I laid my life down for you there? Yes, that was wonderful. Tiny little splinter. And there comes someone with luxurious skin, bathed in the creams of culture, security, comfort, family, pleasure, experiences. Oh, Jesus, here I am ready to start an even better life than the one I had. Oh, I, th- I think you might have misunderstood something. None of us want to be that person on the day. We stand before the Lord and Savior. The biggest splinter, the whole cross in his back. We won't want to stand with luxurious hands before our, our, our Lord. Jesus never asks for anything that's merciless or evil. He doesn't start us off in grace and then say it's now run out, now the rest of it is difficulty. If it starts in grace, Paul says, it continues in grace. Continue the way you started. If you started in the gospel, you go on in the gospel. If you started in mercy, you go on in mercy. If you started in love, you go on in love. He never calls you to go to a life that's merciless and evil. He's not sadistic. But everything he asks of us, he's done himself. If he says forsake father and mother, he only means that any request that they make that calls you away from him, deny it. If he says put down that pleasure you're grabbing for, it only means... That's not good for you in the way that you're using it. Put it down. If he says, put away that ambition, it only means that's going to hinder you in walking his way. Put it down. When Jesus says, leave your father and mother for for my sake, he did it. Right? He did it. When Jesus says, give up the comfort and glory of home, he did it. When Jesus says, lose your reputation in doing good for others, he did it. Scorned, rejected, spat on, beaten. For what? For doing good. We say, because Paul did, we say, 
You know, live a life of love. Against love, there's no, there's no law against these things. There is no law, but you'll still suffer. Jesus did. There's no law against the things that he did. What he did was good, but he suffered greatly. When you lose friends for his sake, he lost friends for your sake. When we endure grief and sorrow, he did it. If we're condemned to death, very few of us will suffer that way. You might have the death of social media reputation, the death of followers. He's been there. There's nothing he'll ask of you that that he himself hasn't done and that he knows is not good for you. If he's asking for it, it's because it's good for you. And the best thing for you is him. In order to walk in this way, this life, there has to be death. That's the picture of baptism. That's why he gave us this picture, this picture of dying to our old life and being raised in a new life. And when he says, pick up your cross, you cannot do it. The Bible says it's impossible for man, but what's impossible for man is possible for God. In other words, how do we do it? If you... Pick up your cross, then you will find in the same moment the help of the Holy Spirit. You will not touch that cross for a second of your life without the Holy Spirit. You couldn't do it without Him. When you walk with the Holy Spirit, when you we're keeping in step with the Spirit and we're following Jesus on the way, then you can give up the world without a wrestle. You'll be able to defeat lusts with His strength. Have absolute victory, I promise you. You'll be able to deny yourself by His power. You'll be able to follow Him by His strength. These are very, very hard things to hear. And if they're not an echo of Jesus, we need to forget them. But if they are, if they are the duties and the delights of grace, if that's what freedom to live for Christ looks like, then we must hear them. And we mustn't even try walk alone. We must almost tie our boots to the Holy Spirit and say, here I go like Joshua. We will go, but we will not go unless you go with us. And we will hear him say in return, I will not let you go one step without my spirit with you. What happened next? Listen. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. What? After such a hard saying? Sinners draw near? And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. Why do they grumble? If you're looking for religion to save you, if you're looking to live your own way, there's going to be lots of grumbling. But the tax collectors and the sinners, those who know who they are and they need a savior, they come to him 
And he and he says, and the, they grumble and they say, "This man receives sinners and eats with them." And then Jesus tells them a parable, which we will get into another week. But merely he says this. He goes back to quality, not quantity. If I can find one sheep, he'll be rejoicing in heaven. More than 99 that don't need salvation. Just the one. Does Jesus want to open the kingdom? Yes. The doors are wide open. He says, come, come. The cross has been laid down like a bridge. Come and walk over it into the kingdom of God. Hand over your passport. Hand over everything else at the door. And come in. Come straight to the throne room of the king. Come before him. And know him. And let him lead you. And let him walk with you by his spirit. Cast off everything that hinders. And day by day as we walk with him, let him build our lives. Let him come and live in us, dwell with us. Let our hearts be a mansion of his presence, a demonstration of his love and grace, a changing vessel as we become more and more like him. You will not look like Jesus by the end of today, but you will look more like him by the end of your life when each single day you, you stand in his new mercies and you cast off and you put on. And you cast off, and you put on, and you walk in His way by His grace, through the power of His Holy Spirit.